top of the morning to you. I hope you had a happy St. Patrick's Day this past week. May the wind always be at your back. Apparently that's something Irish people say, or at least Irish runners and cyclists say. But anyway, uh, I don't know all that much about uh, Irish traditions, but I, uh, I do know that I'm glad you're here. Those of you who are with us online, very glad that you are here. My name is Alan, and I have a question uh, for you as I get started. How would you describe the last 26 minutes of your life? Okay, whether you're here in this room or you signed on on time uh, at home, uh, how would you describe the last 26 minutes of our time together here? Would you say perhaps that you uh, came into this room or signed in online and your tank was a little bit low? And so there was a part of the music and the worship experience where, where your tank got filled up just a little bit. Would you say maybe your tank was here and at the end of our time maybe the tank was just a little bit higher? Would you say over the past 26 minutes that there's been some engagement for you in terms of, of thinking about God or focusing on God in ways that you did not uh, for the rest of the week? Would, would you say that you were thinking about the words that were on the screen that we were singing? Were you thinking about the different phrases and the different words? Or do you know them already and so you didn't think so much about them? Were you feeling the music over the past 26 minutes? Did you feel it in your body? Did you experience that in some way? There are so many different experiences that we had over the past 26 minutes. Why were some of you singing and some of you not so much. Some of you were just, were just uh, moving your mouth so that it looked like your, your mask was, was moving a little bit. But you weren't actually singing. How many of you, you know, had, not how many of you, but some of you, some were like raising their arms or having some kind of body motions that were a part, a physical part of the experience. How would you describe the last 26 minutes of your life? We're in a series right now, we're in week three of a series where we're talking about worship. And the title of this series is Attention. The idea, the overall idea that we're talking about in it with worship is that essentially worship is about giving our attention to God. We live in a world that draws our attention in so many different ways. And worship is essentially the idea of, of in whatever way we can, we just say, God, in this moment, I give you my full attention. I'm setting aside all the other things that are pulling for me, pulling my attention, and I want to give you my full attention. I value you. I notice you, God. I notice who you are, what you are doing in the world, what you are doing in my life. I notice you. I recognize you. I give you my attention. There's a reason that I wanted to talk about worship as a part of this particular journal because the theme for this journal is what? Part blue, the theme is what? Joy. The theme for this journal is joy. And there is a part of worship that is supposed to be an experience of joy and an experience of pleasure that is consistent throughout the, the, what we read in, in Scripture. So is that an experience for you? Over the past 26 minutes, was there a feeling of pleasure? Was there a feeling of joy? Did you feel affection for God while you were giving attention to God. That's what we're going to talk about today. Doesn't that sound exciting? 
Okay, glad you're here. Would you pray with me? We'll head into this. Father, we do want to give you our attention uh, now, right here, right now, right now, God, here in this prayer, here in this, mo- in this moment. There's so many things. Our, our, our phones are going to be uh, buzzing for us. They're going to be beeping for us. There's so many things. Our mind is going to want to go to so many different places. God, we want to give you our attention right here, right now, because, because we know that you want to connect with us. So we, we want to experience all that you have for us here in this place. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I meet with a group of people on Sunday nights. It's a group called One of the Twelve. And last Sunday, as a part of the worship series, I asked them the question. I said, think of the first time in your life where you remember having a meaningful worship experience. That may have been recently, it may have been when you were a child. Think back to the first time you remember having what you would refer to, what you would think of as a meaningful worship experience. However you would define that, however you would describe worship. And then I asked them, so so what would you describe as the most meaningful worship experience you've had in your life? Or, or, and then kind of fill in the blanks. What have been some of the most significant worship experiences you've had in your life? What have been the make-a-memory moments with God that you have had through worship as you understand worship? Now, as a part of the group, I did the same exercise and engaged in that. And I was somewhat surprised to realize that my greatest moments with God have always involved music. They don't have to. We've talked about this in the past few weeks. Worship does not have to involve music. But as I thought about my most significant connections in worship, they have, they have always involved music in some way. I remember being at a, at a conference, and it was a large gathering of people at a significant time in my life, and between the, the people gathered and the music that was happening and just all the different stimuli, etc. It was an incredibly meaningful worship experience for me. I remember when I was young and, and I was leading worship at a camp, uh, around a campfire, and there were a bunch of high school kids, and I was in my 20s, and I was just banging away on my guitar and just having this, this, this uh, sitting around the campfire, and it was just an incredibly meaningful time of worship. I remember that time as well. And then uh, the third one that popped up for me is I remember some years ago, uh, the first time that I walked down into the Grand Canyon. And I was with a group of people, but, but I was alone. You know, it's such a long walk. And, and at one point, I was alone during that walk. I had my headphones on, and I was listening to a worship song about the splendor and the grandeur of God as I was entering into the, the second phase of the Grand Canyon hike, heading into the grand area. And it was just overwhelming for me. My arms were up and I was just, I was just tears were coming down my eyes as I was listening and worshiping and walking into the Grand Canyon. It was beautiful. It was incredible. It was overwhelming. It, it, when I think about the, the significant moments of worship in, in, in my life, they've always involved music. And that really shouldn't surprise me because music has a way of stirring something inside us. That's what music does. It just, it grabs us. It has a way of accessing things that nothing else can. You think about your, just, just right now, think about your favorite scene 
in, in any movie, your favorite scene, or a scene that is big for you, important to you, that pops up in your head. My guess is, whatever scene that is, there was music underneath that scene. That's how they do it in the movies. They want to grab you in a moment, and they will put that orchestra behind you, and it will just carry you to a new, to a great place. Because music has the ability to access parts of our brain, parts of our soul, parts of our whole body that nothing else has access can access. Music is such an incredibly powerful thing for that. It stirs up so much in us. So for the first 26 minutes of our time today, was there something stirred up in you as a part of the music when, when, when the band was singing, Great Are You, Lord? Four words, four words. Did you feel something during that? No, you didn't have to. I'm just asking you if you did. As we were singing those songs, Great Are You, Lord? The words and the music, did they come together to create a moment for you? Or, the, or the, that, that newer song with the Jesus, our redemption, Boom, and, the, and the, the bass drum kicks in there. When Did you kind of feel that? The greatest moments of worship that I've had the pleasure of experiencing in my life have been moments where both my head and my heart were engaged, where my head was acknowledging that there's, there is something about God or about me or about my story or about life or the people around me. There's something about life, etc., that has engaged my head and I'm thinking about it. And at the same time, there's something about the environment, there's something about the, the thumping of the music, the melody of the music that is capturing my heart. The most significant moments of worship in my life have been moments when both my head and my heart have been fully engaged. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. But it's that combo that I believe is the point, that I believe is, is, the, is, the, is the center of this this famous interaction Jesus has with a woman at the well. The story we're going to take a look at today is found in John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, if you have your Bible at home, please turn to John chapter 4 or find it on your digital Bible. The New Testament, if you're looking for John, the New Testament begins with four versions of the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the fourth version of those stories. And what's happening right now in John's version in chapter 4, Jesus and, the, and his disciples were in Jerusalem. And they are heading up to Galilee in the north, which is where Jesus grew up and where he found his disciples and gathered them was in the northern area. So Jesus is down in the south in Jerusalem, and he's heading up to Nazareth up in the area of Galilee. We see the Sea of Galilee in the top. To make that trek from Jerusalem to Nazareth, there are two different pathways one could take. The, 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 the long way was the standard way, and it's going to show up in yellow here, where you head into the Jordan River and you follow the Jordan River up and then head west again to get into Nazareth. That's the long way. 
The short way is going to show up here in pink, and this is basically just going straight north and staying away from the Jordan River. It's significantly shorter, but it has to go through Samaria. Jewish people making the trip from Jerusalem up to Galilee would have taken the longer Jordan River route because they did not like the people of Samaria. And I mean significantly did not like them. I won't get into all of that history, but it's part of... Um, the exile story from the Old Testament. And it's all part of what happened during that exile story that Jewish people have a centuries-long disdain for the people of Samaria. So they typically go the yellow route, the long route. Jesus decided to go the short route, the pink route, uh, and he was actually on his own when he has an encounter with the, with the woman at the well. If you have your Bibles, uh, John chapter 4, and we're going to get started here in verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and it was listed on the map that we had up there, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me, me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, this is setting the stage of this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and there are, there are a number of uncommon things that are happening here. First of all, Jesus is having an interaction with a Samaritan. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and they did not interact with the Samaritans, which, as I said, uh, is, it goes back to a deep roots of hatred towards the Samaritans from, the, from uh, many Jewish people. Jesus, of course, did not share that out of his love for everyone, uh, but this was an uncommon encounter, particularly from the, from the, uh, from the woman's point of view. Another thing that was uncommon is that she was a she, that, that Jesus as a Jewish rabbi was having this encounter with a, with a Samaritan woman. It's even part of the story there in verse 9. Jews do not associate with Samaritans, and, uh, and, and she says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. And then the third thing that's uncommon about this little story is that it happens at noon. We uh, read in verse 6 that uh, this story happens at noon. And this would not have been a time when people from the town would have made the walk up to the well to get water. In the heat of the day, in the desert, we know this here in Phoenix, in the heat of the day, that's not the time to go out. And typically, people would go up to the well at a nicer time in the day. So she went out at noon in the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, because she did not want to see anyone else. She did not want to interact with others. She went up because uh, she was hiding, and she did not have any thoughts about interacting with anyone, let alone a Jewish rabbi at the well. So Jesus, you know, beautifully knew what was going to happen and was anticipating this interaction. And he was alone with this woman at the well. And he talks to her about living water in the next few verses and shares that, you know, if, if you take the living water that I provide, then you will thirst no more. And as awkward and as uncomfortable as it may have been for her, she bites 
We jump down to verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. And this is where her demeanor changes. This is where she goes from, you know, already here in this, these few verses, my guess is she went from being bothered. She was expecting to be there alone at noon at the well. So she went from being bothered to perhaps being hopeful as this Jesus talks about a living water, and now she is ashamed with deep, deep shame. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, this would be extraordinary in our time. I mean, it's, it, it happens, but it would be extraordinary for someone to have, to have had five different spouses. And this would have been equally, if not more so, extraordinary in their culture, which is the reason she was there at noon. And it's, what it's really important to understand is that Jesus was not trying to embarrass this woman. He was not trying to humiliate her. He was trying to say, you, you don't have to pretend with me. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to act like you're someone that you're not. You don't have to pretend with me. Because what Jesus is saying is, I want to have access to something deeper than the reality that you brought up to the well with you. I want to have access to your heart. John Piper, in talking about this story, he says that the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. The quickest way to the heart is through a wound. That Jesus knew, I want to access this, this sweet woman. And so he knows her story. He's not trying to hurt her. He's not trying to humiliate her. He's trying to access the, the depths of who she is. And so he, he goes to this place of wounding because he wants to access her heart. Sir, the woman said, verse 19, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. See what she did there? <laughs> she, Jesus wanted to access her heart, and she starts talking about details. She starts talking about information. She starts talking about data. She wants to avoid what Je Jesus wants to push in on her, and she wants to deflect. She wants to, to avoid it. And this is something many of us tend to do. When, when life gets deep, when life gets hard, it, 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 it's so, so much easier to talk about the information than it is to be open to the transformation. It's so much easier to talk about, to, to, to engage our head 
and what's happening, what we can think about, what we can figure out, what we can explain. It's so much easier for many of us to do that than it is for us to be open to the transformation part, because to the wound part. That's the part that, that Jesus wants to access, and that's the part that we naturally want to avoid. It's so much easier to talk about information than it is to talk about transformation. But Jesus is gracious, and he allows her to change the subject. He, he wants to talk about her heart. She ends up talking about details of worship, and he allows her to go there. And next verse 21. Woman, she replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Essentially, Jesus is going there with her, saying, I'll allow you to change the subject. We'll talk about where we worship. We'll talk about who we worship. But Jesus still wants access to her heart. That's why he's there. So he says in the next verse, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I just want to pause there for a second. This, this is important, what Jesus is saying. In my Bible, the words of Jesus are red, the red letters. And what Jesus is saying here in red letters in John chapter 4, this is what worship is all about. This is what the Father seeks in terms of worship. Verse 23. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Jesus is setting this up. And then he enters into verse 24 and it kind of answers his own question. This is what the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. It's a combo. Worship is about engaging God in both spirit and truth. It's a combo. Now let me ask you, as you look at verse 24, the second half of that, the last two lines up on the screen there, as you look at verse 24, which of those two, spirit and truth, which of those two do you believe Jesus is emphasizing based on verse 24 and that's it? You read it, you look, give your opinion. Which of those two, spirit and truth, is Jesus trying to emphasize here as he talks to the woman at the well? Just think about it in your head. Now, I want to give you, just, just separate verse, just take, take a break from verse 24 for just a second, I'll come back to it. But I want to give you another example that might help you know which one Jesus is emphasizing. If I said to you, okay, if out of the blue I said to you, there are seven hockey teams in Canada. There are seven hockey teams in Canada. The NHL, the National Hockey League, is made up of teams from both Canada and the United States. If I said that, which country do you think I'd be focusing on? Canada, right? See, because that's the one I set up here. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in verse 24. He says, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. He's not discounting the truth part. He's saying, you get the truth part. Most of us naturally get the truth part. 
We, we understand that, that a part of this engagement with God is to engage with the truth about God, who God is, learning the story, learning information about God. You get the truth part because for many of us, for most of us, that's the easier part. But there is a whole spirit part that is, that is intangible and unexplainable. And that's the part that Jesus says, I want to make sure you get that part as well. God is spirit. He is not limited to our thinking. He's not limited to our rationalizing. He's not limited to our reason, to our truth about who God is and explaining, answering questions. God is not limited to any of those things. God is unexplainable, intangible. God is spirit. He's so much more than what we can understand, than what we can explain. And true worshipers will engage with God in truth and, and think about who God is and, and engage with all the, the knowledge and information about who God is. And they will fully engage with God in spirit in terms of their heart, in terms of their emotions, in terms of the pieces that we can't explain, you can't put in a box, you can't pass on to somebody else. It's the chills that you feel as you're singing, as you're worshiping, and you're reading the words and you're showing, yes, God is great, and we have this, this feeling, this rush, this experience that goes through a whole body in an unexplainable way. God is saying, to her, and I believe to me and to us, true worshipers will engage in both the spirit and truth. I don't know about you, but I can relate to the woman at the well. Not in terms of five husbands, but in terms of, of heading towards the head instead of allowing my heart to be engaged. And those moments that I described at the beginning of the message, those were moments where both my head and my heart were fully engaged, but I have a tendency to lean towards the head and not towards the heart. I sometimes meet with a therapist, and I do that because there are times and experiences in life that I can't figure out on my own, and so it is very helpful to process and help have somebody else walk things through with me. Recently, I was talking with my therapist about something, and he said, he said, at the end of what I was sharing, he said, wow. And let me just tell you, it doesn't feel great to be on the other side, and, and it kind of seems like a warning sign, you know, when the therapist says, wow, as in, I haven't seen somebody that messed up in a long time. You really don't want to hear that from a therapist, kind of a, a wow moment, but <laughs> okay. So the, so the therapist says to me, after I had shared a little bit, the therapist says, says wow, Alan, you have a steel plate between your head and the rest of your body. And I don't think he meant it as a compliment. As I was sharing and trying to process it, it just, I tend to stay in my head. And I don't know if any of you can relate to this. I, I am fully engaged with my head. That, that's, if I could just kind of go into my story, that's how I became a believer. I grew up right across the street from a, from a little church. Uh, it was not, I did not grow up in a Christian home, but because of that church, I had access to, to the story of Jesus, and I was somewhat familiar with the story of Jesus. But when I was in college, I really had to wrestle 
with the idea of, of was I, was I, was Jesus the one true story of humanity, or was it simply the story that I had access to because I grew up across the street from a Christian church? And so I, I started reading books on brainwashing. I started reading uh, books on, on how brainwashing works and how uh, cults have formed and how people could, could fall into stuff that just doesn't make any sense. And I was reading up on all this to find out, was this happening to me? Was I actually choosing Jesus or was it just thrust upon me? That was, that was a large part of my faith journey, was really wrestling with all of that. My head is fully engaged. That's why I love to teach. It's why I love what we get to do around here in creating these journals. It's been a, a three-year journey, and this is journal number four of a six-part, uh, six-journal uh, deal where we are walking through trying to break down the seven parts of the, of the story. The Bible story can be difficult to, to embrace, to understand. It's 2,000 pages. There's a whole lot of stuff going on there, and so can we break it down? I love to be able to engage with my head, to break it down into bite-sized pieces so that you and I can actually experience our role in God's story. That's very exciting to me. My head is fully engaged, but my heart is something that I often don't have very good access to. My heart is something that I'm, I'm continuing to learn how to, how, to, how to open up access to that part as well. Because apparently, according to somebody else, I have a steel plate <laughs> separating my head, which seems, to be, which seems to function okay, from my heart, which I don't have much access to. And I don't know if any, any of you can relate to that, but, but I feel like I can relate to the woman at the well. When she is asked about heart questions, and she responds with a head answer. The title of this message this morning is, I adore you. Week one was, I value you. Last week, Dwayne talked about, I notice you. And then today, you can see in your, in your journal, if you have it, on page 81, the title of this message is, I adore you. Okay. To whom in your life can you, would you say, I adore you? Who in your life could you say that to? You could probably say, I like my boss. You could probably say, I love my siblings. I love my sibling. We just, we just have fun. We, we, we enjoy one another. We have all this history. We have all these stories together. But to whom can you say, I adore you? Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, your spouse, your grandma, your nephew, some child, some little child in your life that you've gotten to know, so a student that you teach, your dog, whom in your life can you say, I adore you? You see, because love, love is, of course, a very complicated word. It's a complicated concept. It's a very fuzzy word because we use it in so many different ways to refer to so many different things. But love essentially is a choice. This is really important for us to understand. Love is a choice. It's a decision. 
Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice to say, I love you and I am committed to you. And it is, it is really an engagement of the head to say, I love you. But adoration is a feeling word. For us to say, I adore you to someone, it means there is a very positive feeling that is connected to that moment, connected to that relationship. Let me give you an example. I love my wife. Even when we're fighting, I love my wife. I do because I'm committed to her. And I know that we are going to work this through. As, as soon as she realizes that she's wrong, <laughs> I, I just have to wait it out. I have to wait it out. And I love her through that transition. But when we are fighting, it is very unlikely. I'm just going to pause and say, I adore you. <laughs> I, I've never done that. I can't imagine ever doing that. And I don't think that my wife finds me adorable when we're fighting, as amazing as that would be to hear that, as surprising as that might, might be. My wife and I have said to each other at times, I love you, but right now I don't like you. We've said that at times. It's that whole idea. It's that kind of, my head is engaged, we're good, but my feelings right now are just not in the same place as my head. When we say, Father in heaven, I adore you, it means that we are not just engaged with our head, but we are engaged with our heart. It means we're not just giving God our attention, we are giving God our affection. Imagine, imagine that I... Imagine that someone that you care very much about does something wonderful for your birthday, does something amazing for you. This is your, your grandparents, your parents, your, your spouse, your kids, a friend. Somebody does something wonderful for you for your birthday, and you say thank you, a heartfelt thank you to that person. Would you rather that person say to you, it is my duty, <laughs> or that person say to you, it is my pleasure. Would you rather that person say to you, I did it out of obligation? Or, I did it out of affection for you? See, when we say, Father, I adore you, we're not just engaged with our head, we're engaged with our heart. We're not just giving him our attention, we're giving him our Affection. True worshipers worship both in spirit and in truth. Can you do that? Did you do that in the first 26 minutes that we had gathered here? If you can, if you do, fantastic. If that's your worship experience, fantastic. Continue to celebrate that. If you struggle with that, like I do sometimes, like I believe the woman at the well did, then perhaps we can remember what Jesus said about what true worshipers are, that we worship both in spirit and in truth, that we have affection for our Father in heaven while we give him our attention. We're going to close with one simple song. 
hopefully with the words you already know so that you don't have to think about timing of the words or melody, hopefully that you can engage both with your heart and with your head as we sing one final song before we leave. Would you bow your heads with me as we head into this? Father, how beautiful it is that you care about our affection. You, you care about not just what we know, not just what our eternity is going to be, not just what decisions we make today and tomorrow morning. You care about our hearts. You care about our, our affection toward you. And so right now here in this moment, we want to give to you what only we can give to you, something that is miraculously important to you, our affection.